everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Podside Picnic. I'm Connor and I'm here with Pete. And this is going to be the first episode of us kind of journeying through the science fiction canon. In short, I really need and want to learn about sci-fi and I've barely read any of it. And Pete, as you'll soon discover, has been reading it seriously for 40 years. So that's the dynamic. And I'm going to let Pete talk about what we're discussing today. Okay. Really quickly, I'd like to say that it makes it sound like I'm getting nothing out of this, but I do want to emphasize, one, I really love teaching, and two, uh, I think Connor is an exceptional writer, and having him look at some of my favorites books with that writer's eye is something I'm really looking forward to. Pete, you are too kind. Hey, like, if we didn't get along, we couldn't do this podcast, man. Uh <laughs> that is also very true, folks. Glimpse behind the scenes there. Anyway, what are we doing today? <laughs> okay, well, we are doing a uh, a book which, uh, love it or hate it, is clearly, if not the, one of the most influential science fiction books of the last, I was going to say 50 years, I could probably say 100 years. I would say the vast majority of our audience has read it, and many of them will have very loud opinions by the time we're done. And that book is William Gibson's Neuromancer. Yeah, and honestly, even speaking as a layman, I would say in terms of influence on mass culture and a book, a single text that has sort of uh, invaded, even fully colonized whole swaths of mainstream culture, I'm not sure that anything tops Neuromancer. Uh, and we're going to talk about why that is and how that works. Mm-hmm. When did you first read Neuromancer, and what was that like? I was 15 years old. Uh, my parents had just moved to a new university town, and I started checking out the library. It was very—I will remember this to the end of my days because you know how, like, the librarians would set out the books that they want you to read, and you had to get past them to get to the books that you were really interested in. It's like Sophie's Choice of da-da-da. Well, maybe Sophie's Choice is the wrong term, but you know what I mean. <laughs> they they put books out in front that they think that, that us plebes should be reading. They put a science fiction book out front. They put Neuromancer. And I'm like, that is the weirdest thing I've ever seen in a library until next week when they started putting DVDs out there. But I grabbed it. It was uh, – I, I really loved the book. I would say – I'm, I'm moving into review territory now, and I don't want to do that yet. I will say that at the time when I read it, I wasn't aware of its significance. Like nobody, like the clouds didn't part and people didn't hand me to this book. Librarians seemed to like it, so I picked it up. And it turned into one of the more enjoyable books that I read at that age. So, okay, just to give everybody some some context here, remind me, how old were you when you read this? I was 15 years old. You're 15 years old, mm -hmm. and uh, this 
that probably wasn't the exact year that it came out, but that was you know the first couple years after it came oh, out. Oh, sure. And- yeah, certainly within the first three, it had definitely been making some noise for a while on the science fiction scene. But like when you're 15 years old, you're either hyper-tuned to that stuff or completely oblivious. And I was oblivious. I picked books by what was shiny on the shelves. Right. So for background here, folks, uh, Neuromancer came out in 1984. So this year is its 35th anniversary. Um, kind of fitting that it came out in a year that is so important in the, the sort of long arc of science fiction storytelling. Oh, that is uh, beautiful. <laughs> it's great, right? And to be clear, this was William Gibson's, as I think Pete said, first novel. And it's also considered kind of the founding novel of cyberpunk, which I think as Pete has pointed out to me, there's really only two, well, I'll let Pete talk about this. Like, tell us a little bit, Gibson, and how this novel came into being and the formation of cyberpunk. Okay, sure, sure. Gibson was, his his relationship to science fiction was very tangential growing up. Like, sure, he read it, but to give you an idea, he was, he was looking into doing, uh, getting a master's degree in the relationship between fascism and science fiction. He was severely distrustful of sort of the modern thrust of science fiction, especially the golden age stuff. And as we, as, as probably everyone is aware of, a lot of that older, uh, science fiction is about landing on a planet and, uh, making all of the natives, uh, cut wood for you. You know what I mean? It's very much a, uh, the space cadet is a superior vibe. And it's, right. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's, it's also, a lot of it is not very good writing. Uh, so, Neuro, uh, Neuromancer, I, wouldn't it be great if we just started calling authors by their most famous books? What a, what a dystopia <laughs> that would be. But, right. Uh, Gibson really, uh, didn't trust that subculture. He started writing in it and he put out a few, uh, short stories like Fragments of a Hol- uh, Hologram Rose, which are really good, but he ended up linking up with a couple of other authors like Bruce Sterling and Lewis Shiner and those guys. And they, at a convention together, I think it was in Texas, they talked it out and, uh, basically, tried to consciously push science fiction in this direction based upon what William Gibson did with Neuromancer. It's very interesting to me because it's not like he put this book out and then suddenly there was this critical universal push towards this is what science fiction is like now. No, it was very tactical. Like these guys sat down and said, we're going to take the ideas behind this book and we're going to try and make a genre of science fiction about it. And if it works, we'll be legends. And they were right. That's really interesting to me. Um, And I think it's important for everyone to bear in mind when you say someone like Gibson really distrusted these imperial, uh, literally imperial, sort of Cold War, Golden Age writers. You know, he was the perfect age to be a hippie. I think he was in his mid-30s when he wrote this novel. Mm -hmm. And by his own description, based on Wikipedia at least, he said he was very immature, you know, 35-year-old, kind of still. I think he's referred to this uh, later on in life as an adolescent book in some ways. Um, Yes. And he had, you know, he'd come of age. If you're 35 in 1984, that means you've come of age in the high 60s, you know, from 67 to the early 70s, mm-hmm. which is exactly what Gibson was doing. And he was a true hippie in that period, kind of wandering around, being itinerant, you know, dodging the draft, 
um, right. famously, uh, he, you know, the anecdote, this is all famous stuff. Um, you know, he, what, didn't he say that he, when he had a draft board hearing, he told them his goal in life was to ingest every hallucinogen known to man. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm impressed, Connor, because I, this is very much about you reading the book and, and just sort of absorbing it, but you've really done your homework this time, man. I've, I've tried to. I think what, one thing you should know about me is I've actually been trying to read Gibson for years. I've picked up his books and tried to get into them and I have never succeeded in getting through one until now. And we'll get into why that is, but one byproduct of that is I've heard so many laudatory things about Gibson, and I'm aware of his influence on the culture. So I have read his very long and detailed Wikipedia page. Really wonderful work, Wikipedia editors. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and I've read it, you know, I've read a fair amount about him, and I've heard so much about him. So he was a presence for me and someone that I've been trying to contend with before this, but it's really only in the last few days. In fact, I finished reading this book about an hour ago. So it's very recently that I've actually finished a book by William Gibson. And um, yeah, I think it's probably time for Pete to start interrogating me a little bit about all of that because, man, I have a ton to say. All right. Well, I'll do that. But I will say I props to you, Connor, for eating your vegetables on this one. I realize when you do that, when you flirt with a book or an author and you have to put it down and you do that a couple of times, after a while, you just can't pick it up. And so that this was probably a lot of work for you. I mean, yes and no. It was certainly was a return to do, excuse me, assigned reading mm-hmm. uh, in a way that I haven't in a while since grad school. Um, but no, I did enjoy it. But uh, go ahead, go ahead, give me some, give me some cues so I can complain about this in an erudite way. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, before I start, I will say that um, I have a sixty-five pound dog that hasn't seen me in hours, and it's entirely likely that she may take my elbow and her teeth in the middle of one of these questions. So if you hear a yelp, that's what's going on. Uh, Fair enough. You're not being given neurotoxin through the matrix or whatever. Nothing like that. Just, just, just an attentive animal. So, uh, what was it like for you reading Neuromancer for the first time? I mean, you're aware of its million pastiches and the subgenre it founded, and it, it basically owns the literary world in science fiction in a lot of ways. How was that for you? Well, you know, we're using certain metaphors here. Um, I think when Pete and I were tossing around this podcast and doing early recordings and stuff, I think a phrase that I used was to say, we're in a moment where sci-fi is seemingly invading the mainstream. And I think to a greater, greater extent, and maybe even becoming, it certainly is edging its way to the center of the culture, right? And therefore, what is sci-fi? What are the boundaries around that genre is becoming a pressing question. And I think that later on, we'll also get to, is the mainstream invading or perhaps gentrifying sci-fi in a sense? But I bring all that up to say that because, to me, Neuromancer, now that I finally read it, and truly within about 20 pages, I was tweeting, oh my god, all of the pastiches <laughs> make sense now. It all makes sense. This is this is literally, and when I say all the pastiches, it's, it's, it's little tiny things that probably didn't even seem that important at the time that this book more or less invented. It's like... This is the first instance of like, you know, characters who have like pink spiked hair and are wearing plastic trench coats. You know, this is, um, this is like the first instance of like Molly Millions, the street samurai who has, you know, razor blade fingernails. And these are all things now that pretty much any kid writing fan fiction can invent off the cuff. And it's like so much of this was pretty much invented by Gibson and his friends. And Neuromancer was the first to popularize so many of these little aesthetics. 
Um, so what was it like? Like I said, it was revelatory in that way. I, I think that one of the things that I read about Gibson is he was very worried in writing this novel. He'd written science, he'd written sci-fi short stories and he was commissioned to write this. So he was not a man on a mission where he was like, you know, I'm going to become the great American novelist. I get the sense that prior to doing this, Gibson's life was basically just, I'm just trying to have a good time, you know, and not be, um, you know, not be a square or whatever parlance he would have used in the sixties and seventies. So then he gets commissioned to do this and he was very nervous. I guess he rewrote, and I can relate to this, by the way, I think this is very common for novelists and not discussed enough, that he rewrote the first two thirds like a dozen times, roughly. And at one point, you know, when he was writing this, he, uh, I guess he saw Blade Runner and got very worried thinking he'd been scooped aesthetically, right? So those Blade Runner and uh, Neuromancer enter the culture around the same time and you know, I think they, their influence is intertwined in a lot of ways, but they are different things. And all of which is to say that stuff, any analysis I can give, any impressionistic analysis or anything else I can give is buried under this immense cultural weight. And that's probably one reason why it was so hard for me to get through a Gibson novel prior to now is the things that annoy me in Gibson are things that have filtered so fully into the culture that I recognize them from other people's hacky pastiches or people's good pastiches. I mean... You know, if you think Altered Carbon is a good pastiche, or if you think The Matrix is a good pastiche, and all of these things were hugely influenced by Neuromancer, as were a million different things, like probably thousands of video games, for instance, and thousands of novels, and many movies and TV shows, uh, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. Um, you know, it, it's, I've, seen, I've seen people imitate Gibson and his frenetic writing style so many times that I think I was sort of preemptively sick of it before I got to him. But it's important to remember, you know, he wasn't the first guy to write in this really frenetic way that kind of prophecies and tries to mimic the information overload. Like one of the, the really brilliant things about Gibson, of course, is he invented the term cyberspace in this novel, right? Um, and he was sort of prophesying or presaging digital spaces. And his, his prose style is so, I'm sure many people have said this, it's so busy and insists on its own realness and vividness so much that it is very much like dealing with the information influx of the internet, right? And these are things he's doing before anyone is having that experience on any massive scale. There, I guess the internet had technically was in its budding stages at this point, but it wasn't something that he used or normal people were using. Um, he was just trying to imagine augmented realities, virtual realities, and digital spaces. And again, I, I'm tracking over stuff that's familiar to a lot of people to get to, to get to a certain basic point, which is that I'm just going to open the first 50 pages of this novel mm -hmm. somewhere randomly and start reading to give people, you probably have read this novel, but if you haven't, some sense of like what this book is like. So I'm just open my copy to page seven. And the paragraph goes, Night City was like a deranged experiment in social Darwinism designed by a bored researcher who kept one thumb permanently on the fast forward button. Stop hustling and you sank without a trace, but move a little too swiftly and you'd break the fragile surface tension of the black market. Either way, you were gone, with nothing left of you but some vague memory in the mind of a fixture like rats, though heart or lungs or kidney might survive in the service of some stranger with new yen for the clinic tanks. Biz here was a constant subliminal hum, and death accepted punishment for laziness, carelessness, lack of grace, and failure to heed the demands of an intricate protocol. All right, so... To many of you, that'll be very familiar on so many levels. 
But I think it's important to note, he's doing a few things there that you're really not supposed to do as a writer. He's mixing metaphors left and right. I, I would have uh, used the word torturing a metaphor, actually, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Um, yeah, so he's mixing metaphors, he's torturing metaphors, he's throwing modifiers out willy-nilly. He's insisting very confidently on the vividness and the realness of what he's doing. And here's where this gets interesting for me as someone who who has a lot more background and training in literary fiction coming back, circling back to this book. Um, it reminds me so much of what James Wood, the famous literary critic uh, who reviews books for The New Yorker, he, one of his most famous essays, perhaps the most famous thing he's written, was his essay on so-called hysterical realism, which was about turn-of-the-century fiction like Franzen, David Foster Wallace, Zadie Smith. Um, and hysterical realism, the basic thesis that I'm probably butchering is this is fiction that is reminiscent of Dickens more than any other classic writer and that is so bursting at the scenes with an insistence on its own life. That's, there's so many characters entering the frame. The flow of images is so constant. Uh, the language is so invested in its own energy. And Gibson very much reminds me of that. And I think that one reason is that I'm sure Gibson probably read the postmodern writers who prefigured the hysterical realism, like Pynchon. I think I assume I'm I've assumed that Gibson read a lot of Pynchon, for instance, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, this has been kind of a long monologue. I just want to cap it off by saying for all of that analysis I just did, I did not like the first two thirds of this book. And I thought <laughs> I thought that there was a lot of basically pretty lazy, overplotted noir that was insecure about not having enough happening. And therefore, Gibson had to make something happen on every fucking page. On every page, someone's having a gun pointed at them, or they're having sex, or someone is trailing them, or something's blowing up, or there's a plot twist. And you're just like, dude, it's okay. Just slow down. And again, that's not Gibson's style. That's not what Neuromancer is. I do think that as you go on, the third act of this book is weird, and so many elements have been injected into it that I'm honestly surprised that casual readers over time have really followed it at all. I had trouble following it. There were so many people and proper nouns floating around by the end. But that's where some of the stuff that is that I thought was interesting and original and still felt fresh came out. All right, Pete, I've been monologuing long enough. That's okay. Um, uh, let me – go ahead. Well, I did I did have one follow-up question in relationship to what you're saying, and then you can fire at me if that's okay. Please do. All right. So um, – I'm going to say this poorly and let's work together to get to my actual question, which is, do you think it's actually possible to read this book at this point? Like, I don't even know that it is a book at this point. It's more of like a culture bearing artifact with so many things tied around it that I know when we're looking at this initially, though you, you stepped into the breach here and you say this and this and this I didn't like, you had to feel some trepidation because like what you're taking on isn't a book anymore. That is all true. I like the phrase culture-bearing artifact. And I'm going to use another imperial metaphor here. Okay. Neuromancer is like the little exploratory ship that uh, you know left, let's say, Lisbon and floats to some vast new continent. And when it gets there, it's just some boat full of weird people. And then 50 years later, it owns the whole continent, right? That's, that's Neuromancer. And so to answer your question, no, it's not really possible to read this book. I mean, again, I can, I can mock or deride the kind of the cheap noir and the overplottiness and lots of different parts of it that I didn't love. Sure. Um, but I mean, if, if the goal of a novel is to achieve a kind of immortality and canonicity, and this, this might arguably be a goal, a, a lofty goal for novels, 
Um, if it's to achieve a kind of influence where it's almost ineluctable within the culture, then near master wins. And nothing I, I say is going to change that. Um, you know, and, and that makes it a very special book. I think that even though we're talking largely about canonical texts, um, I think Neuromancer, I mean, there are, there are, there are books that get treated like they're really important in the mainstream canon that haven't had one iota. They don't have one, one thousandth of the cultural inheritors across different media. Once again, it's not just books, it's movies, it's comic books, it's video games, it's everything you can imagine, um, that Neuromancer does. And yeah, critique almost feels impossible or beside the point. Um, I, I only reason, in fact, one of the only reasons I think it's worthwhile for me to say I didn't like it or to say that that's, that the, the overplottiness didn't work for me or that the frenetic, insistent prose wasn't always my favorite thing. Those things only matter to me because I'm, you know, I'm working on my first novel, as Pete knows. Uh, he's read a draft of it. And um, I relate to Gibson's insecurities and all the stuff he was worried about as he was doing this as a first time novelist which might sound arrogant because I'm not William Gibson, but I can, you know, there's something very hu human to me about the flaws of this book because well, it is a first novel written by a guy who I know was worried and insecure about every element of it. He wasn't William Gibson either then. Exactly right. So I think that's totally legitimate. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, he, he had no idea if this was going to pop at all. Uh, you know, he, he was very worried about losing the reader's attention. And, and I think he probably went, too hard the other way. But it, something about this clearly has worked for a lot of people over time. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I have immense respect for that, partly because part of the reason we're doing this podcast is so I can have, can change my relationship to what we call genre fiction, sci-fi in particular. Um, and I'm trying to sort of reverse engineer and disassemble, uh, you know, the kind of literary snobbishness that I had as a younger reader when I was getting my degrees in English and all that stuff. And then that sounds, that sounds very snotty and it is very snotty. But, you know, I, I have my impressionistic opinions of these works, but, um, you know, <laughs> you, you can't help but respect a book like this, um, partly because there are still elements of it that still feel transgressive, um, or that still feel, that, that still to me felt oddly fresh by the end. Once, once you can sort of start peeling away all the layers of plottiness, I'll say. Um, you know, I mean, Pete, what was it like? Answer me squarely here. When you were like 15 reading this book, what was it like to read a book that makes a great deal out of like sexual perversions, like extreme sexual sadism and um, incest? And these things, by the way, folks, are very important to the plot, as you would know if you've read this. Like, you know, what did you think of it when you were in your mid-teens? It, well, it's a good question. And part of the problem is that science fiction is riddled with pulp. Like, there's a lot of books out there that were specifically written by people who were not particularly good writers. And one of the things that they do to keep their audience's interest is uh, insert sexual scenes or partial nudity or whatever they think is going to move the needle but still allow Random House to pick them up. So while it was – there was definitely a lot here that you wouldn't expect – um, Frank Herbert did much worse in some that other books. That is true. <laughs> so, yeah. So, like, like, did I read through some of those scenes and go, wow? Yes. Like, when I think about, uh, Molly Millions, uh, being a programmable sex toy at a bar, 
before she figured out what was going on. And that was just a mentioned thing dropped off to the side. Wow. Yeah, that, that, even back then it bothered me. But the thing is, um, the thing about science fiction is it doesn't, it doesn't have a lot of pride when you compare it to, uh, other genres of fiction. It, it has internalized the idea that it is not significant writing. And therefore, the field has a lot of things in it that are specifically there to appeal to a mass audience. And so as a 15 year old, I was used to that. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I wasn't even thinking so much about the luridness that's trying to be titillating. I was even thinking about where it gets edgy to the point where it's probably not supposed to be titillating. But like, it's who knows where the boundaries are. This is oh. this is a constant question in storytelling: is at what at what level is depiction endorsement? What are you really asking readers to feel? Always interesting, open questions. So I'm gonna go back to something you said though about writing internalizing that it's not great writing because because again, Gibson has. He's definitely among the sci-fi writers who have been adopted by the literary mainstream, and many academic articles and books have been written by respectable scholars about Gibson. Mm-hmm. And so he has been—he's—he's he's got the literary cachet. Um, you know, he's probably not going to win the Nobel Prize, but other than that, yeah, I think he's broadly considered now a literary writer, unless you're a, a huge, very particular kind of snob. Um, and that's something that we'll be talking about is how those writers traveled that distance. I doubt when he was writing this, and certainly when he was being a weird hippie before this. I doubt he ever thought he would get to that exalted status. Um, and I don't think this book was a bid to do that. But one thing I think is very interesting, again, reading, reading his, uh, his prose that is so over the top, is he can do things then that I think are certainly intelligent, that show a lot of erudition, that show a skill. There's a certain skill with wordplay. The wordplay doesn't always work. When it does, I think it's fantastic. Um, you know, the famous opening line, um, going to open my book to make sure I get it exactly right, which has entered the canon as much as almost any opening line in fiction. The sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel. Great. Okay. Like, fantastic. I'd say that any literary writer would be proud to have written that. Certainly a pension type would. But what I would say as, as someone who's trying to write a novel um, that does bridge some of these gaps uh, is that you can't... There is that, that so much of the edifice of the literary world and people who work within the publishing world is like, you know, there's, there's a lot of policing of the impulse to play, the impulse to have stuff in a narrative because it's fun for you and because you're showing off. And Gibson went full bore on all of that, is not going to apologize for it. Um, and, you know, I almost just want to like open another random page and just read something to give people more of an idea of what I'm talking about. Do it. Um, Let's see here. He adjusted the trodes. Marcus Garvey had been thrown together on an enormous old Russian air scrubber, a rectangular thing daubed with Rastafarian symbols, lions of Zion, and black star liners, the reds and greens and yellows overlaying wordy decals and Cyrillic script. Someone had sprayed Malcolm's pilot gear a hot tropical pink, scraping most of the overspray off the screens and readouts with a razor blade. The gaskets around the airlock in the bow were festooned with semi-rigid globes and streamers of translucent caulk, like clumsy strands of imitation seaweed. He glanced past Malcolm's shoulder to the central screen and saw a docking display. The tug's path was a line of red dots, free side a segmented green circle. He watched the line extend itself, generating a new dot. Okay, so there's a lot going on there. I think to really visualize that, you'd probably have to read it a couple times and slow down. Um, because there's so many colors and, and, and coming at you and images that are not pausing to explain themselves. But we're talking about a ship that belongs to space Rastafarians, hence the Lions of Zion, 
Um, but for some reason, the spot, the, the pilot also has hot, hot pink gear. Um, not sure why, because Gibson thought it would be cool and fun and disjunctive to do it. And that kind of aesthetic, that aesthetic intermixing that is at the heart, I think, of cyberpunk. Um, you know, again, Gibbs is one of the people who invented that. So you can't, <laughs> um, you, you can't even make fun of it at one level. Um, and I, that, that was a pretty solid paragraph as these things go. Um, but again, like, you know, I, I feel a lot of insecurity and a lot of waffling on how much I feel I'm allowed to really mess around and play around like that and have these explosive images. Um, Gibson doesn't give a shit. And I really, really admire that. And I think that's an impulse that, frankly, we've probably gone too far the other direction where people are trying to write really clean, crisp sentences. And a lot of fiction honestly looks too much like journalism. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's funny. I think we're due for, I think that in some ways we're due for a revival of this frenetic, probably drug-fueled prose. Um, you know, that, that's, that's part, I'm rambling now. But, um, so... Go, go. What were you going to say, Pete? Well, I was just going to say, um, the analogy you used was, was Columbus discovering a new continent, which, I mean, it's problematic in all kinds of ways, but I, I have an alternate metaphor for you, which is he was the first fish on land. Like, a lot of what he did was clumsy, it was weird, it wasn't entirely well thought out, and he was doing his own thing, but it was also just this glorious, unique thing. That's my pitch. Yeah. yeah, and I, you know what? You would know better than me, which is why I'm going to ask you some more questions. Sure. Um, can you give me some sense? How how did this book, why this book? I, I do think it's a very interesting book. But how did it become a subgenre creator? Because there are a lot of really great and unique books in the sci-fi that did not achieve this. And what made this the one that sort of knocked New Wave, which, by the way, was the inheritor, or the, not the inheritor, was the rejection, the wave that followed Golden Age, as I, as I understand it. So what was New Wave? How did it get knocked off its pedestal by cyberpunk and this book in particular? Sure. Okay. Well, uh, first off, Neuromancer is uh, about a console jockey. You could think of him as a hacker uh, that gets scooped up in an extremely complicated theft. I, I guess the best way to think about this would be a... Um, a futuristic corporate dark heist movie. Um, how yeah, am I, I doing? Agree. Okay. Yeah, no, that sounds right. And so what, what's, what's interesting, like if you want to, if you want to, we never even really said what cyberpunk is. So. Um, yeah. I mean, tell me, so I think we all hear the word cyberpunk and we associate it with a series of images and cultural objects, Yes, but I couldn't give you a real concrete definition. So go for it. Okay. So what I would say is uh, all of science fiction prior to this was having a discussion about whether the future should be or could be good or whether it could be bad. And Gibson stepped forward and said, well, the future is very likely going to be the future. It's going to be more of the same. It's going to be corporate. If things get, uh, if, if, if things get exciting and wonderful, they're also going to get, uh, equally, uh, horrific. And so the cyberpunk is basically 
taking the modern era and hitting the fast forward button. Like what you were saying about Chiba was actually a very good description of what cyberpunk is like. There's more corporate influence. People are scrambling, trying to make ends meet. The rich are even richer. The poor are even poorer. And it's just the science fiction is, is current day going faster and faster until you can barely track what's going on. That's right. I mean, I'm going to interrupt and just say that it's fitting that this came out in the middle of the Reagan era uh, at the dawn of neoliberalism, right? Where it becomes like, let's actually just think about what it means to be a successful entrepreneurial individual operator in this world that is neither, is neither a complete dystopia nor a utopia. Uh, it just happened. It is what it is. And we're going to be cool people navigating it like Case and Molly Millions. Is that, is that like a fair linkage of this to its historical moment? Yeah, it's perfect. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Um, And so, like, when you say, like, the Golden Age, we talked about it briefly, is, is, I mean, it's basically about America colonizing the world. Like, that's sort of, or the universe. That's the message of the Golden Age. The message of uh, the, oh, what is wrong with my brain? Help me out. The new wave. Wow. The new wave, yes. <laughs> so the, the, I might edit that out. Uh, the, uh, the, the new wave is basically a reaction to that. It's like the world is more complicated than that. Our goal is not just to conquer the universe and set up a series of McDonald's there. And the, the new wave went in a lot of different directions. Sort well, of- it's important to note that the new wave, as we'll get to, uh, some of the writers like Ursula Le Guin, they were feminists and they were left wing. And they were pushing back against the reactionary politics of the golden age, right? Very much so. I mean, that was a big part of the new wave. But there were there were other new wave arter, artists that were. Uh, I mean, you could call them more centrist if you wished. Uh, but uh, uh, cyberpunk basically ignored that discussion entirely. I mean, the basic idea is like, let's look at what the future is likely to be and navigate people trying to find their role in it rather than having like a morals argument. The morals are beside the point to William Gibson. It is what it is. And I think as a human being, he doesn't feel that way, but he expresses it very well as a writer. Right. And it's not even, like you said, it's not a moral statement. It's really just a savvy and again, very prophetic thought that, well, if things continue on their current arc, we're just going to have to figure out how to be operators in this ruthless world that is ruthless but has a lot of maybe cool and weird opportunities branching out of it. And it's we're at least going to conceive of ourselves as not fully part of these systems, even if we are. Whether or not that's fallacious or problematic, that's how people are going to be operating. And I think that's a pretty good <laughs> summation of trying to make the best under neoliberalism and late capitalism. Absolutely. Um, so what, what would it take to make you go back to Gibson here? You know, I'm definitely going to go back to him at some point because I want to see how he evolved and I want to see how pattern recognition, for instance, his second most famous novel 20 years later, uh, which is a post nine 11 novel, I guess, um, mm-hmm. you know, what, what changed for him? Because I find it to be an interesting figure. I think I probably find William Gibson, the man probably more compelling than his books in a lot of ways. Um, just I, you know, I, I, there seems to be a lot to be learned from his arc, um, and where great fiction comes from, partly because there's, there tends to be this very, this tragic misunderstanding of where really good writing and good books come from, that it's someone who's like anointed from birth and is just this great talent, talent and descends 
uh, early in life from the heavens with this perfectly done novel. And it's like, that's absolutely not what happens. And I love the idea of Gibson being this dirtball hippie for 35 years, <laughs> being com- being pushed by friends to write a novel uh, and doing it and being really worried about it and being certain that it was shit. And then it turns out that because he was, partly I would assume because he's worried about it, because he was so insecure and he was rewriting it so many times, it turned out to be this hugely influential thing. That is that is closer, I think, in historical terms to how most great literature happens than this image which is pushed by, um, I think it's pushed by the academy, it's pushed by pop culture, that writers are this untouchable talent from birth and that there's no friction along the way other than, you know, them being alcoholics because they have dark souls or whatever. But uh, <laughs> uh, no, I think Gibson's very cool in that way. So I will go back to him. And I think to this day, of course, he's a cool guy on Twitter. Um, you know, our, everyone listening to this probably, probably knows this, but like he remains at the age of 65, a cool, arguably prophetic voice with seemingly pretty good politics um, and all of those things. So I will go back to him. And I think, I think that I, one of my projects for myself is to try to continue to understand what he was doing and why he was doing it. Because I do find Neuromancer to be an interesting text, even if it's one that I don't like, uh, mm-hmm. sort of at first blush. There is, you know, I, I'm in the midst for the, you know, Pete knows this, many don't, but like, I'm in the midst of uh, rewriting my novel. Um, and that is something I've done before. I've rewritten the entire thing multiple times before, in fact, um, which Gibson did with the first two thirds of this book. And, you know, I think that the more that I do that, the more that I could kind of see the scene, or I can at least imagine, try to imagine empathetically the seams and the decision making that's going into how are we carrying the story here? How are we holding people's attention? And I can, you know, it, it's fun to think about where do I think it worked and where didn't it work? And what was he worrying about? And for me, Neuromancer goes down as one of the most interesting first novels I've read in that regard, just because I know the genesis of it. And I think that it shows a lot of its scenes in an interesting way. I don't think showing the scenes in your fiction is necessarily bad um, at all. Uh, yeah, so I will keep going back to him because I do find him captivating, even if as a read, this wasn't necessarily my cup of tea. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a remarkably fair. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very hard to be handed a book and told it's supposed to be the most incredible thing that ever happened. I think it's, it's sort of to your credit that you didn't, uh, that you didn't completely rebel <laughs> because like people have been telling you for years that you had to embrace it. So, yeah, um, actually, well, interestingly, I think the people that I know well who like Gibson, a lot of them actually said pattern recognition was better than Neuromancer, but they're like, but Neuromancer's a classic and you know, they're both great. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm glad that I got the chance to circle back and do this. Um, I, I think, whew, you know, I have as a it's it's weird to try to put this in the context of this podcast project we're doing because I just you know we've read it we've read a couple things so far and I just keep thinking of of Saw Gerrera uh, near the start of Rogue One. We have a long journey ahead of us, <laughs> uh, and this is an interesting one to start with because it is prefigured by so many other movements and it's relatively recent, certainly in literary history um, and even in sci-fi history, but. Um, I have a question for you. Um, okay. Speaking of the history of this book. Sure. So we take for granted that Gibson is this towering figure to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, are there contemporaries of his that you feel got unfairly buried by this and overlooked because of his success? Do you think that anyone deserves some modicum of the immense credit Gibson has gotten? I mean, how does that, how does that function? 
Yeah, um, it's hard for me, actually, because, I mean, I was, in 1984, 1985, I was grabbing the books just as they were coming off the shelves, you know, as, as a as a science fiction nut. And um, there were authors whose writing was very, uh, well, they, they were operating in the same space. Maybe they hadn't put the pieces in the exact same way together that Gibson had, but the writing was fantastic and it 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 bothers me a great deal uh not not because i guess i'd better get specific so let me give you an example walter john williams was playing in the same sandbox writing very similar things but he just didn't thread the needle in the same way that William Gibson is. He wrote a couple of books during this timeline like Hardwired or Voice of the Whirlwind. And to give you guys some ideas, I have a passage of Voice of the Whirlwind tattooed on my leg. That's how (laughs) I'm really into this author. And it's just a question of the, the very similar ideas were going on in his head. He was looking at the future as uh, not so much a paradise or dystopian, but a thing that we all have to deal with. But he just didn't put a bow on it in the same way that Gibson did. And there were a lot of authors during that this time period. Basically, what happened to them is that as soon as the cyberpunk wave happened, they jumped on. So while I think that Gibson and... Uh, Bruce Sterling and all those guys did sort of make a calculated effort to start a movement here. The conditions were there. There were a lot of writers out here exploring in this space, and they all sort of jumped onto this immediately because they were definitely primed to. Um, if, if I wanted to, you, you know, when we were talking about the idea of Columbus, I keep going back to this. Sorry about that. But another way in that analogy sort of works is that uh, there were a, there was a Viking settling Greenland scenario here. There was a book called Women at the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy. And it was written in like the mid seventies. And every element that you would want to see in cyberpunk is in that book. Wow. I have never heard of her or that book. So tell no. us about it. Well, she's a poet primarily. And this book is about a woman who gets committed to a mental institution. And uh, part of the book is you never really know whether she's crazy or this is actually happening. But she starts getting visitations from two possible futures. And one is a utopia and the other is a, a cyberpunk future. And... Both groups are trying to influence her to make a decision because what she does within this mental institution is what is going to flip the multiverse in either direction. We will end up with a utopia or we are going to end up with a cyberpunk future. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it's a great book, but I mean, it was it was about a it was about a uh, an insane woman in an asylum, and in the seventies, that didn't get quite the same play as a techno heist would in nineteen eighty three or four. Honestly, sounds like a book that would do a lot better if it came out forty years later, <laughs> i.e., now. Yeah, oh, uh, for a lot of reasons, because uh, it does sound very interesting. Yeah, I mean, the techno heist. Um, gosh, like. That, 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 that's one thing to be said about Gibson. He clearly, I'm sure he read, uh, probably a lot of both Golden Age and New Wave sci-fi. He sure. probably read people like Pynchon. 
he also clearly read his noir and he again, as you said, he's he's pulpy. Yeah. Gibson is willing to be pulpy. He's playing with the pulp. He's doing it in a reflexive and meta way, arguably. And I think that's actually something that's really interesting about genre fiction that we were talking about earlier about like what is meant to be titillating and what's meant to be gross and where where do the boundaries lie. Um, I, I think that one of the really sly things someone like Gibson does is is he he wants to have plausible deniability around all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do that in genre fiction in a way that is, I would say, probably, well, not categorically harder in literary fiction. But because you have the defense of saying, hey, look, I have these high concept ideas about artificial intelligence, about what space colonization is going to look like, about what the future of cities is going to look like, about what the corporate future is like. And these are all very much in the story in interesting ways. You can say, those are my ideas. But you know what? To get this out there and have people read it and to pay my bills, I need to have this be incredibly pulpy and entertaining. And that is, you know, that, that is a, that is the conventional excuse or whatever you want to call it, even just frame of how genre fiction works or sort of ambitious genre fiction, at least. Uh, I think one of the contentions I'm going to make over the course of this podcast is that it's often a lot slyer and rider than that. It's not, it's not as simple as like, well, look, I have these ideas. I have to put them into a pulpy framework for this to work in the genre. I think it's often a lot more complicated than that. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in Gibson's case, like what he's doing is certainly, we can say, a lot pulpier uh, and more conventionally legible and fun than what you just described. You know, that, that sounds like it might be in many, many ways an equally smarter, even smarter uh, novel. <laughs> sure. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's kind of my spiel about that. Um, I feel like... Man, I feel there's so much I want to talk about this novel that is almost most of it has been this conversation very tangential to the novel for for obvious reasons. Oh, sure. Um, you know, I want to ask you one last thing though. Do you, as someone who read this when you were 15 and has reread it uh, several times since, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, do you think that you really enjoy this novel still, or do you think that's really mediated by the culture, or what do you think your relationship to it is at this point? I would say that. Um... I will never pick up the book and read it the same way I did when I was 15. It's just, I'm, uh, there's so many ways in which I'm a completely different person. And I'm never just going to soak it up as a, 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 a book about a heist with a, a woman who can, has razor blades popping out of her fingernails. It's just like, that's, I can't see it that way anymore. But can I just sort of lean back and enjoy it at least once in a while? Sure. I, I think, um fundamentally i um i i like pulp i mean one of the things that keeps me going back to the well of science fiction is that i can enjoy something without it necessarily being um something challenging me on an intellectual level like the rhythm of the book, the visual images, those things are often what brings me back to a book. Do I want to be challenged sometimes too? Yes. And Neuromancer probably doesn't do that anymore, but I'm still enjoying it. Oh, that's a great answer, really. I do. Um, I think it gets to something um, very important about Gibson, which I think we've touched on, but I, I was using big words like frenetic or insistent <laughs> uh, about his prose, and I think that the really important thing you can tell about this guy, the guy who at his draft board hearing said, my goal is to ingest every hallucinogen known to man. Gibson, by the time he's writing this book, finally entering adulthood belatedly, this guy's sense of fun is way, way more highly developed than most writers, because really most of the novelists that enter cultural prominence 
I think it's fair to say a lot of them at least are weird, quiet people who are extremely introverted and have not had a lot of conventional fun in their lives. That is very clearly not true of William Gibson. And I think he does a good job taking his, uh, his hippie sense of fun and his actual experiences and turning them into and allegorizing them into this wild world that he's imagined. That is, and that is itself a kind of gift um, that only a certain kind of writer can give. And I think in saying that this is an extremely fun book on every level, it's probably a good place to wrap. Okay. Hey guys, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I, Connor, I'm looking forward to the next book. Uh, talk to you soon. Talk to you soon, Pete. Take care, man.